From the Mellon Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona, this is Keeping Up With Public Health Pandemic Response. I am Caitlin Meyer Krause, and my co host is Eric Healy. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Casey Ernst, Dr. Yonko Nikolic, and Dr. Deepta Bhattacharya. Dr. Ernst is an associate professor and program director of the Department of Epidemiology at the College of Public Health. She is an infectious disease epidemiologist that actively works with local health departments to examine questions related to vaccine preventable diseases. Dr. Nikolic is a professor and department head of immunobiology at the College of Medicine and the co-director of the Arizona Center on Aging. He is internationally recognized as a leading immunologist and gerontologist. Dr. Bhattacharya is an associate professor in the Department of Immunobiology. His lab studies both stem cells and antibody responses to infections and vaccines. Dr. Ernst, Dr. Nikolic, and Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you for joining us. The media has been focused so much on testing for COVID-19, the need for more testing, prioritizing testing, how long test results take, how did the U.S. begin testing, what are the types of tests, and why hasn't testing been more widespread? You know, the first test was to detect directly virus material. And, and essentially, it was a molecular test that was developed by the CDC. Essentially, that was the test that they wanted everyone to be using. I and mean, it makes some degree of sense that you want some degree of standardization and validation that the test you're administering and delivering works. But what became very clear very quickly is that they really didn't have the capacity to issue all those tests to all the people who really needed it. So then what they did is they started allowing these things called emergency use authorizations so that other academic centers and private companies could essentially adopt the test so long as they showed some basic level of validation that they were able to properly administer it. So that's the setting that we're in right now. There's a number of companies and academic centers that are essentially doing their tests in-house to directly test for the virus material. What the second kind of test that is just now being developed and is starting to reach some markets at least is what's called a serological test, which is not directly looking for the virus material, but rather looking for an immune response against the virus. And so there's some different implications to that. Generally speaking, the immune response is characterized by antibodies that are made against the virus. And those will normally start to develop a few days to maybe a week or so after the first infection. And so it's sort of a surrogate for having exposure to the virus. And the thing about it is that it basically these antibodies are maintained in the serum for quite some time afterwards. And so it's a measure of exposure at some point, either active or prior, and basically using the immune response as a surrogate to measure whether or not someone has been exposed to the virus. And those are the two tests that are out there right now. And the first one is just, I think, starting to catch up, but I, I understand that there's still many communities and states that are still not getting the molecular testing that they need. The serological tests, there are very few places that are doing that yet. In the absence of commercial tests, many of these tests that are hitting the market, it's not really clear how they were validated and how stringently they are working. We feel that we can do a pretty good job on that, and uh, we're hopeful that we will have the validation in place, which is not the same as saying, like, next week we're going to be offering this to tens of thousands of people. That ramp up is a different different schedule. And I would also like to comment on one other thing. You know, in the beginning, going back to the history of testing, even before the um, you know, CDC and had, had the test that 
ended up working, there was probably a few precious weeks being lost in trying to make that test probably a little more sophisticated. The idea was again great behind it because they were thinking when when the you know China got hit, the WHO recommended a test that they were standing behind that was validated for China. And some countries took that test. The U.S. did not. The CDC thought that because this is happening at the peak of the flu season, that it would be a really good idea to simultaneously test for influenza uh, and a few other respiratory diseases, as well as for um, SARS coronavirus 2, which is the, the agent that causes COVID. And so, unfortunately, that test, when it was rolled out, did not work well. It had problems with, it was catching up a lot of false positives, people that did not have it. And so there was that lag as well. So we, in a way, had like two or three layers of lags that put us behind in the, in the virus detection test. Another uh, means of testing that has been in the news lately is the concept of a rapid test. How does a rapid test differ from uh, what's currently available? I mean, not really much, at least in principle. They're just finding ways to you know, shorten the reaction times and improve the detection limits. But the basic principle of what is being detected is the same. You're either looking for virus RNA, nucleic acids, or you're looking for antibodies against the virus. I mean, the basic principle of it is essentially all the same. I think the rapid testing is a way that will allow access to communities and clinics that might not have the sophisticated machinery that some of the bigger labs do. You know, with these rapid tests also comes a certain level of cost in terms of what we'll call quantification. I mean, how many antibodies do you have? How good are they? Those are the kinds of things that the rapid tests won't really be able to tell you. They'd really just be able to tell you yes or no. How long would something like that take to develop? I can tell you that just from a news report today, there's a, a local company here in Tucson, the name of which I'm forgetting now, that has managed to acquire some tests manufactured in China, which is a rapid serology test. But you know, getting back to one of the things that I said before, and Yanko had mentioned, I think one of the, the concerns here is that many of these tests are essentially being authorized under this emergency use authorization. So in many ways, the traditional level of validation just isn't there. And, you know, particularly when the commercial vendors are sending it, it's very difficult to tell what they're actually doing. So that makes me, a, you know, more than a little bit nervous when we start to administer these tests that really haven't been validated or vetted or in any way that a scientist could really understand it. So I was cheating in the meantime, and I checked on that, that the name of that. It's, uh, the, the outfit is called ArcPoint Labs, and um, that's, the, that's the venue that's offering this particular testing. But as Deepta said, very often from the websites of these companies, it's very difficult to tell exactly what are they using for testing? What are they using as antigen? What are they using as antibody? You know, how, how well has this been validated? And then the other part about, about testing, um, in the beginning also, CDC had to validate everybody's tests. So they would get like the first round of testing locally, then it would be sent to Atlanta for the validation. And that took a long time. So that, when it comes to the virus detection, I don't know whether that's a requirement still, but I think that's, that has been, has been shortened now, right? And I'd like to bring Casey into the conversation. Uh, Casey, as an epidemiologist, how does this type of surveillance or lack of surveillance or lack of validation affect the, the epidemiology of it? Significantly. I mean, I think even, even now that we have a little bit better access to testing and testing kits, 
there's still a significant number of people that are going undetected. I have students who are who are working in clinics who have indicated that you know they they're triaging people based upon epidemiological contacts, on severity of disease, on if they're healthcare workers. So so there's still a lot of people who are who are probably positive for the coronavirus that aren't being captured in our system. The recommendation is call your healthcare provider first. And so people who have mild symptoms may not even actually be going into a healthcare facility and they may just be told to, to stay home and isolate themselves. And, and as an epidemiologist, that means the proportion of the cases that are actually being reported that you can look at the patterns of disease for is, is quite small. And so it's hard to get a really strong picture of, of what's going on and to even understand where we are in the, in the epidemic curve because you're going to have this sort of confounding where you're ramping up testing and you're also sort of possibly increasing transmission at the same time and trying to tease those two things out can, can be a real challenge. I wonder if I can ask Casey a question here, actually. You know, so there's different implications for what the different tests do, right? And obviously one is an active infection and one, one is conceivably immunity. So imagine where you get a serological positive from someone who is, you know, maybe felt a little bad, you know, a month ago, uh, but is clearly not virus positive anymore. What, what are some of the implications for um, that kind of testing and returning people to work? I think that is something that we have been talking about in epidemiology is we really want two pieces of information. Number one, if you've been exposed, do you get immunity that prevents you from another infection? And I don't think we know that answer yet. I don't think we know because there's, there's some evidence of people in China who are testing negative and then testing positive several weeks later. And does that mean they were reinfected? Does it mean they had a false negative? You know, are they just shedding virus longer than most people? So I think there's still some questions about the duration of immunity and sort of the antibody level that your body has to mount in order to be seroprotected. And so I think we need those two pieces of information. But if, if you do, after exposure, mount a, a titer that's high enough to protect you from reinfection or from transmitting to other people, that would be amazing. Because then if you have a test that would allow you to determine if somebody is now immune, they could start going about their daily business. They could start trying to you know, help help other vulnerable populations get groceries places. It would be amazing for healthcare workers to know that when they go in, they have less fear about their own health and about their family's health when they go back to work. So I think that would open up a whole new avenue of prevention and, and control strategies and response strategies. Would you venture a guess of how many people may be infected actually? as opposed to the numbers that we currently have <laughs> reported. <laughs> yeah, I would say if you're talking infections, both mild or, or even asymptomatic, um, my guess is there's at least 10 to 20-fold higher numbers of cases than are being reported, at, at least. And so we're actually in process, I'm working with Narav's team here on campus to develop a community-based surveillance system that's um, looking at syndromic illness, and so trying to get a better handle on what might be going on in the community in the absence of really rigorous community-wide testing, trying to at least understand who's getting sick, where, where they're getting sick, how long, et cetera. And Dr. Nikolic, based on Dr. Ernst's previous comments, I think that 
as the as a co-director on the Arizona Center of Aging, some of that information is very important to you, especially if people have the possibility to re to become reinfected. Uh, what are some of the the misconceptions you think people have towards the the population that is considered elder, elderly and, and most at risk for contracting COVID-19 and how it progresses? I mean, first, first of all, you know, to repeat what's, I think now almost becoming a common knowledge, uh, older people are at a very high risk from this disease. I mean, we know from mortality curves that when they get above 70, the mortality rate is about 15% is much higher than, than in, in the younger ages. And that is certainly something that we would love to understand at a very basic level. Why is their immune system not working? Are their lungs truly more vulnerable to this, this particular virus and why and so forth? You know, the, the, the misconception, however, is that younger people cannot get sick or die. And that's really not true. That is probably one of the biggest issues that that you know, I have some beef with that I think need to be straightened out in the public perception of, of, of this disease. This is a dangerous disease. Younger people do get sick and some die. And it's not something where your birth certificate will protect you automatically. Fortunately, the very young, the children do not really have, they rarely experience serious disease possibly with the, the, the exception of neonates and, and infants, where I know that at least one fatality has been recorded. But when it comes to people 20 and above, already there, there are cases where the physicians could not even understand, where somebody would feel really, really quite okay, even when they test positive. And then they would crash basically over 24 hours and end up you know, having to be intubated and placed on the ventilator and even some of these people perish, and it's in a, it, it's just a very you know huge cautionary note that, that you know everybody needs to take this seriously. And I'd like to make one more comment, you know, to follow up on on discussion about immunity. From what we know about these types of viruses, immunity usually is protective and is durable once you get out of the acute phase. And so it would be surprising, but this virus has been full of surprises, if immunity is not there to protect you once you have cleared the, the initial infection. I know that there have been cases of people testing negative and then positive later on, but as far as I know, nobody has had symptoms later on after not feeling well in the beginning, late, uh, meaning three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks out. And there has been one study that, again, you know, a lot of most studies for this particular virus have been posted on these servers like uh, BioArchive or MedArchive, um, meaning that they're just posted out there for quick information. They have not been peer-reviewed, so they have not been stringently vetted. But in one such study, there was an experiment being done on monkeys where they have been given the virus, they've uh, cleared the virus, they did not feel well during a period of time. They came back and then the researchers tried to reinfect them. And so uh, and they were not able to. And that would be consistent with having protective immunity. That's great news, Yanko. And, and I'd read that study on the macaques as well. So... I, I think that that would be, you know, a significant step forward when you pair that with the ability to test and, and see who's been exposed. That would really help us in the, in the future. 
that's all of what you said is absolutely true. You know, we do not know what would be the protective titer. We also do not know whether everybody who has antibodies has the good antibodies that they need for protection. And those are the questions that Deepta and I are really, you know, in parallel to developing the test. Those are really the research questions that, and uh, that, that, that are super pertinent that we really want to try to answer. You know, and those are critically important right now too. I mean, you've probably heard some reports of passive transfer where they're basically transferring serum or plasma from one patient to the other. And that makes me nervous. You know, I mean, I think I'm with Yanko in that, you know, it, it would be, to me, I would be shocked if once you've cleared the virus, you have antibody titers that you could be reinfected. I mean, it's possible, uh, particularly if there's some uh, genetic variant of the virus that arises. But that to me is a different thing entirely than taking someone's plasma or serum and then giving it to someone else because then what you're doing is you're diluting the amount of antibodies substantially. And so, you know, as Yanko said, we don't really know what the protective dose is. There's at least some in, some in vitro culture studies that say that if you fall below a certain threshold of antibodies, it actually makes it worse. Um, and so I think these are the things that I think we need to be wary of when we start thinking about some of these therapeutic interventions. Now, I fully understand that desperate times call for desperate measures, and, and there is some science behind this, but I think that there's an awful lot we don't know, and that makes me a little bit nervous about these therapeutic interventions like that. And there were reports in those where, you know, initially some transfers were made about toxicity to the heart and so forth that, that you know, would make you even more nervous. And is there a cross-reactivity between the heart muscle and parts of the virus, or how is this damage happening? We, we, we don't know any of that, and that's what's calling for you know, very rapid but, but thorough and rigorous research. Yeah, I thought that I had been reading that there was some evidence that it was that there was a sort of cytokine cascade that was leading to significant damage in, in some of the really severe cases. Is, is that correct? Or You're right, Casey. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's actually a, is a peer-reviewed paper and I think uh, Journal of Clinical Investigation Insights that, that reports just that, where they actually found an anti-correlation with how well people are doing in antibodies against the spike protein. And then they did some transfers into some non-human primates. And again, I think those animals got worse too. So as Yanko said, I think that there needs to be a real careful assessment as to you know, what is a good antibody, what's a non-protective antibody, and there's the possibility that some of those antibodies or other things in the serum are actually pathogenic. And I think these are all things that we don't know. So I, my, my, my comment to this would be that for SARS-1, which is really the closest seriously pathogenic cousin to this, this particular virus, it has been shown quite clearly that, as you said, that people who do not do well are stuck in, you know, for a prolonged period of time in a very strong cytokine response. Now that normally when the immune system is working well, is supposed to be the case early on in the infection. And then you're supposed to move to making good antibodies. And the uh, literature says that for SARS-1, people that did not do well did not make the switch. They did not move to the production of, of, of antibodies, suggesting that what you said, that, that cytokines themselves would be damaging to internal organs. And when you look also at that against the presence of the virus, that's actually um, telling us that while the virus in the beginning might be the bad guy who's damaging things, the virus actually goes down in people who get very, very sick. And that is where very likely the immune system is, is pathogenic and is doing things inappropriately. Again, that's something that we need to figure out and we need to figure out in a hurry.
so I just have a, a random question, but since since chemotherapies and immunosuppressive drugs work on cancer, is there any sort of biological plausibility that that would be effective when people have this hyperimmune response? As a general principle, I think the answer would probably be no. Whether there are specific targets that we could use and suppress parts of the immune response, I would imagine that, that the answer will be yes, because if we knew which arm or which part or which maybe individual cytokine is responsible for this surge, we, we very well may be able to block it. I've heard that some people have, again, going back to the deepest common, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. There are FDA-approved drugs against interleukin-6, which is one of the uh, very broad cytokines correlated with acute face reaction. It's found out in sepsis and so forth. And people have applied NTIL-6 treatments in, in uh, uh, COVID-19. Uh, there's some anecdotal you know, evidence of efficacy. I have not seen anything in print that would you know, put that together and, and uh, you know, show with sufficient statistics. Part, part of the you know, biggest part of the problem very often here is going to be statistical power and rigor with which people have been able to do these early studies. It's like, you know, whatever's preliminary you put out there so people can see it, that's also, you know, it's good, it's informative, it's also part of the reason for the confusion, because there's a lot of little studies that may be drawing wrong conclusion out of small numbers of subjects and so forth, and maybe, you know, getting us down the rabbit holes. So for the first SARS, they tried not some of these targeted therapies, but things like general, uh, you know, corticosteroids to try and tamp things down. And, um, you know, history repeats itself. I mean, there are some initial studies that made it seem like as if it would, that was going to be beneficial to outcomes. But really, the meta-analyses that have gone back and looked at it would say that, if anything, it made it worse. So I, I think we should be cautious about any sort of broad-spectrum immune suppressives. Maybe targeted things like IL-6 if someone is really in the midst of a storm. I agree with Yanko. But I think it's important to take some lessons from the first SARS and what people tried as well. Thank you. Those are great points to keep in mind. What are some ideas of what the public health workforce should be doing now to protect the most vulnerable populations until testing is more widespread or until a vaccine or treatments are available to the general public? So I think it's what we're doing, right? I mean, the, the social distancing trying to keep ourselves away from each other to reduce transmission in the community is, you know, in the absence of vaccines and good treatments, that is what we have to do with a respiratory infection. And I think, you know, a lot of people think about their own risk or their family members' risk when they're, when they're thinking about, well, should I really actually do this social distancing thing? But the fact of the matter is that if, even if you are young and healthy, number one, you could still get sick. You may not die as frequently, but you could be hospitalized for weeks and you could be incapacitated for months. And so I think, you know, protecting yourself and your family is important, but there is also this sort of community obligation that we have because we have a significantly vulnerable population here in Arizona. We have the 12th highest percentage of people who are um, 65 and older and older folks are, are more at risk here. And we have high rates of diabetes, high rates of heart disease here. We have a lower proportion of beds per capita than some other states. So we're in a very vulnerable area. Um, and so that social distancing is really, really the best way to reduce our contacts and reduce transmission. And I would just add to that, that yeah, our population nationally overall is not terribly healthy. 
you know, just for these reasons that, that you've already heard. I mean, rates of diabetes, rates of obesity, all of that. So, so we're not in a great shape if we don't do the right thing public health-wise. And so it, it's exceedingly important to do that which we know works. And that's one thing and one thing only for now, and that is social distancing. Good. I'm glad to hear we're on the right track. Dr. Ernst, do you have any advice on continuing public health programs that are geared toward those more vulnerable populations that have needs beyond avoiding COVID-19? So I think there's multiple strategies that can be employed. There's, there's already a, a nice effort, you know, with the schools being closed, they're still cooking meals in the schools and, and delivering those meals and they have drop off for, for kids. Parents can actually go and pick those up as well for their kids. There's also community-based networks that are prop, sort of propping up neighbors helping neighbors. There are systems that are being put in place. So we're trying to put the system in place with the team to be able to ask people what they need and geographically pinpoint where there may be food insecurity, where there may be sanitary shortcomings and or mental health or social isolation. And so trying to develop Technology, but also remembering that a lot of the most vulnerable people don't have access to technology, aren't used to using it. And so there are ways you can reach out to people in the community on a sort of distancing basis. You know, even if you, you talk to your elderly neighbor um, sort of a six feet apart and they're, they're in their backyard, you're in yours, to just have that connection with people, I think is, is absolutely needed because the longer this goes on, the more we'll start to see mental health and other indirect effects of, of the social distancing as well. I mean, I'd like to expand on that a little bit from the standpoint of, of the older population that is particularly vulnerable to social isolation. Now we're telling them, you know, don't get near anybody. So, so putting that, that uh, you know, infrastructure in place, even when it's just a simple phone call or something or, you know, knocking on the door and then stepping back and talking to them a little bit is so incredibly critical to, 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 to maintain that viability, vibrancy, just making sure that they know that somebody cares and that somebody's around. I mean, it's really uh, supremely important. I mean, I'm just looking at how we are functioning um, you know, working from home and, you know, as you can imagine, setting up a lot of these, you know, testing assays and guiding our laboratory members so that they're safe and everything else. I mean, it, it's grinding on us. I can, cannot even imagine how it feels on somebody who doesn't even have that level of, of stimulation that we go through and, and is confined to a small closed space. That's something that's, I think, of utmost importance going forward. So Dr. Nikolic, Dr. Ernst, and Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you very much for, for making time to speak with us today. And the conversation has been wonderful and illuminating. And uh, best of luck to you all in your research and stay healthy. Great. Thanks, thanks you so too. Much. Thank you. Thank you. Same